Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and this is our latest episode of Essential Antitrust. COVID-19 is continuing to disrupt global economies, and analysts have predicted that 2020 could see more large bankruptcies even than in the year after the 2008 financial crisis. And we've seen companies from Hertz to Latam Airlines already filing for bankruptcy and other companies teetering on the brink. So it's no surprise that we're seeing an increase in requests for advice on how merger control rules apply to distressed or bankrupt firms. Now, at the same time, governments are working around the clock to respond to the COVID crisis. And that's also led to questions about how the merger control and foreign investment rules should be applied to companies that supply goods and services that are critical for the pandemic response. So today I've assembled three of our partners from around the world to talk to us about how the authorities in their jurisdictions are dealing with these issues. First, we have Alistair Chapman, who's the head of our UK antitrust practice. And we have Tona Oyen, a partner in our Brussels antitrust practice. And then we have Mary Lehner, who's the head of our US antitrust practice. And she's also spent time at the FTC, where she was an advisor to two FTC chairmen and was a lead attorney in the Bureau of Competition. So she can give us an insider view on how the FTC might think about this. So let's start off talking about the substance of how regulators look at a merger that involves uh, a target that's in bankruptcy or that's flailing. Mary, how did the FTC and the DOJ think about this in the US? Thanks, Jen. One thing that we should recognize before we start talking about uh, the FTC and DOJ review of these transactions is that the vast majority of transactions that are filed before the FTC and DOJ in the United States sail through review. They do not pose any competitive issue. They don't pose competitive concerns to the authority. Uh, they are filed and quickly reviewed. It's confirmed that there's minimal, if any, competitive overlap and the tr- transaction moves forward. What we're focused on here are those rare cases where there is a competitive overlap. The authorities do have concerns about the competitive effects of the transaction. They spend their time reviewing those mergers that raise competitive questions. So in a distressed economic setting, the parties to a merger and acquisition are able to assert what's known as the failing firm defense. And that's where one of the parties, and when I say one of the parties, I really mean the target, the party to be acquired, is at risk of going out of business absent the transaction. So unless the buyer buys the target, the target goes out of business. And this is a defense that's recognized by the FTC and DOJ. They recognize it in their guidelines. They recognize it in practice. Uh, But they also remind us frequently that this is a tough defense to make out. I'll walk through the three factors of the defense. First, the target has to be unable to meet its financial obligations in the near future. Second, the target has to be unable to successfully reorganize in bankruptcy. And third, the target has to have made unsuccessful good faith efforts to elicit reasonable alternative offers that would keep its assets in the market and pose a smaller danger to competition than the proposed transaction would. 
in practice, this is a tough defense to raise. And it's a tough to, defense to raise before the FTC and DOJ. And that's a tough defense to make out in court. One thing I should mention as well is that there's a riff on the failing firm defense, which is also tough to make out. It's a failing division defense. And this is essentially where a target asset or division uh, would exit the market absent the buyer coming in to buy those assets or uh, that division. And to successfully assert a failing division defense, merging parties have to show that the division or the assets to be acquired have a persistently negative cash flow on an operating basis. The owner of the failing division or the failing assets has to have been unsuccessful in good faith efforts to find a reasonable alternative buyer. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Um, the, the test applied by the Competition and Market Authority in the UK uh, is along very similar lines to, to that in the US. And in practice, look, it sounds pretty similar to the US. The, these three criteria are very rarely met. In the last 10 years, a failing firm defence has been run successfully only seven times which I think is less than 10% of the time that a failing firm defence has been attempted. So like in the US, it's a, it's a pretty high bar in the UK. I suppose one thing worth just bearing in mind, though, even if you can't get a failing firm defence away, then considerations about the party's financial performance could still be relevant to the CMA's counterfactual analysis, whether because you're running some sort of flailing target story or because it allows you to point to efficiency reasons for why the deal should be permitted. Mary, Al, I mean, it sounds like in the US and the UK, this approach to a failing firm defence, at least as far as it's a formal defence, is, is fairly similar. Uh, Tona, is that the case in the EU as well? Yeah, Jen, I think it's, it's fair to say indeed that in Europe, the, the criteria, first of all, are very similar to those applied by the CMA and the authorities in the US. The guidelines clarify that the inevitability of the assets of the firm leaving the market may in fact underlie a finding that the market share of the failing firm would in any event accrue to the acquiring company. So those are the criteria. I think when it comes to the actual interpretation and the application of the failing firm defense by the European Commission, just like by the CMA and the uh, US authorities, the Commission is, is very, very strict uh, and indeed uh, has only uh, formally accepted the failing firm defense in four cases uh, since the early 1990s. Um, the most recent case dates back to 2013 and involved Aegean's uh, second attempt at acquiring its rival Greek airline uh, Olympic. Uh, in that case, the commission ultimately accepted that due to the economic crisis uh, that was waiting in Greece at the time, and Olympic's uh, very difficult financial situation, uh, that Olympic would, uh, would have been forced to leave the market uh, very soon uh, with or without the merger. The Commission accepted that if Olympic was not going to be acquired by Aegean, it would just simply shut down operations, which means that ultimately the outcome in the absence of the transaction would have been worse for competition. Just to pick up on a point that Alistair was making before, I think a critical aspect of the Commission's investigation 
when considering uh, a failing firm defense argument brought by, by emerging parties is indeed the so-called counterfactual analysis. The Commission will want to try to understand what would have happened with the target business or its assets in the absence of the transaction under review. And it's only if the target's assets would either completely exit the market or in any event fall in the hands of the purchaser that the EC, that the Commission, seems to be willing to accept the failing firm defense. Now, if we try to make that concrete, I think in a, in a very recent case dating back to 2018, um, when the Commission reviewed ArcelorMittal's acquisition of the principal production assets of its uh, Italian rival steelmaker Ilva, uh, the Commission did exactly that. They conducted an in-depth analysis of the counterfactual situation. Arcelor had been arguing that Ilva was risking bankruptcy, that there was no viable alternative buyer uh, available, and that in the absence of the transaction, the uh, target's assets uh, would exit the market. The Commission, however, disagreed with uh, Arcelor's arguments and rejected the failing firm defense. It concluded that in the absence of the transaction, even if Ilva's assets were to exit the market, there was no evidence to suggest that Ilva's market share would accrue to the acquirer. So because of this very restrictive interpretation of the failing firm defense, uh, we see that acquirers of distressed targets uh, often uh, not even try to run a formal fa failing firm defense but they rather argue that the difficult financial situation of the target should be taken into account in the assessment of the counterfactual and of the competitive significance of the target in the Commission's substantive analysis. For example, on a recent case uh, on which we acted for a buyer of an insolvent competitor in the wind turbine industry, we knew from the outset that the failing firm defense uh, was not going to fly, would not be available to, to the acquirer, but we did successfully use the fact that the target's business was subject to insolvency proceedings in support of our position that the transaction would not give rise to competition concerns. Thanks, everyone. I mean, that, that's really interesting. And I think, of course, the failing firm defense comes into play where you actually have some kind of competition issue because it is, you know, by its definition, a defense. But one of the questions that we get all the time in a bankruptcy situation is, regardless of whether there are any substantive competition issues, how fast can I get this through the merger control process? Because if a firm is in insolvency proceedings or it's on the brink of insolvency proceedings, there's often not a lot of time for a leisurely merger control filing process to, to play out. So, you know, Mary, I know in the U.S. there are some rules that allow for perhaps some expedited processing of an HSR filing when a company is in restructuring. Can you walk us through how that works? So a couple of options for firms to keep in mind if they are undergoing a bankruptcy proceeding or seeking an infusion of cash of investment. First, with respect to the investments. If a company is seeking investors to help support the company through a financial hardship, and these are passive investments that are no more than 10% of the outstanding voting securities, then these are investments that are exempt from filing under HSR. So these are investments that can be taken or made uh, without the holdup of HSR. Also, if there is a sale that's proposed in bankruptcy, there's an expedited procedure 
whereby the FTC and DOJ have a 15-day review period as opposed to the usual 30-day review period during which they can carefully scrutinize the transaction. And um, one thing I would flag here is that, again, as we discussed a little bit ago, most transactions, they're not competitively sensitive. They uh, are not competitively problematic. They fly through. There's, there's no issue. Now, for those transactions that raise competitive issues, there's still that initial 15-day review period. I will say that this compressed time period absolutely gets the attention of the FTC and DOJ. So if there's a competitive issue raised, you can be sure that there will be a team at the FTC or DOJ who is dedicated to finding out very quickly how serious those concerns are and whether they need to issue what's known as a second request, a request for additional information, which extends the time period and gives the FTC or DOJ more time to review. This is a a situation where the authorities uh, really don't like to be pressed. Uh, They understand the exigencies of bankruptcy, but their uh, responsibility is not to concern themselves with Uh, the concerns of the bankruptcy court, the FTC and DOJ antitrust division are concerned about antitrust. And so even under exigent circumstances that the parties are facing, the FTC and DOJ will proceed with a serious antitrust investigation. And if they feel they need to do it, they will step in to try to stop the acquisition from happening if they believe that it will lead to competitive harm. And here the the concern is, of course, that if they don't act immediately before consummation of the transaction, they don't stop the transaction from happening in the first place, it will be very difficult to undo after the fact. Tona, how about on the EU side? Are there any special procedural rules that kick in if you're in a bankruptcy situation? Yeah, I'd say that the, the situation in, in Europe is perhaps a little bit different, Jen, compared to what Mary was just outlining for the US. There is no special procedure as such that applies to transactions involving insolvent targets. Uh, as you know, there is a, a general standstill obligation for transactions that trigger an, an EU filing meaning that transacting parties cannot close their deal until the EC, until the Commission has given its approval. And this obligation applies to all deals subject to merger review by the Commission, including deals involving insolvent targets. And and companies that implement a notifiable transaction without receiving prior clearance expose themselves to very high fines. That said, in in exceptional cases, um, parties to a transaction can obtain, upon request, a derogation from the the standstill obligation from the Commission. So this might be the case, for example, where the target is indeed in severe financial difficulties. Now, obtaining a derogation from the Commission uh, does involve a rather burdensome process. It's it's sort of a a, a separate um, submission you need to make to the Commission on top of your 
usual notification form. And it will involve an assessment by the Commission of the effects of the standstill obligation on the companies involved, i.e. the Commission will want to investigate uh, whether as a result of the standstill obligation, i.e. the inability of the parties to close the transaction, uh, there could be serious harm to the parties or potentially to third parties. The Commission will also investigate as, as part of such a derogation process whether the transaction is likely to raise any substantive competition concerns. So I think the, the Commission will most likely only be willing to grant derogation and allow the parties to close the transaction before uh, the substantive review has been completed if there is good evidence at the outset that the transaction doesn't raise any substantive antitrust concerns. Derogations from the suspension obligation in Europe are very rare. The latest statistics uh, that I've seen, and I think those are up to date until the end of June uh, of this year, suggest that uh, the Commission has so far only granted one derogation uh, of the suspension obligation this year. We may expect this to change uh, in, in the next couple of months as the economic effects of the pandemic take hold. But at this stage, we've only seen one case. It's unclear uh, as of yet whether that case had anything to do with sort of the outfall of the COVID-19 pandemic. But this is clearly a, a space to watch. Uh, but it is worth keeping in mind, I think, that in, in relative terms, derogations are likely to be granted only very infrequently. We've seen that, for example, at the height of the financial crisis back in 2008 and 2009, that derogations were granted in, in less than 2% of all notified cases on, on a yearly basis. Alistair, how, how does it work in the UK? Uh, well, look, I mean, in contrast to the position in the EU and the US, um, the UK merge control regime is voluntary. Uh, it's not suspensory, uh, and that means that mergers can close prior to receiving clearance. So, unlike in the EU, there's no need for any derogation from a standstill obligation, as strictly there is no such obligation. That said, it's worth noting that the CMA will, almost as a matter of course, uh, impose an initial enforcement or, or a hold separate order on parties. Uh, prohibiting them from implementing completed transactions pending clearance. Uh, now, in the context of distressed M&A, uh, I think it's fair to expect the CMA to be maybe a little bit more sympathetic uh, to certainly well-evidenced derogation requests that would allow the purchaser, notwithstanding the order, still to take certain defined steps in order to secure the viability of the target pending clearance, so cash injections, for example. But even then, the derogations generally would come with conditions. Uh, for example, restricted visibility over the target's financial statements. Uh, and they'll be typically only granted where they wouldn't undermine the CMA's ability to impose remedies at the end of the investigation. Uh, they're very keen to avoid what I think Mary called the, the scrambling of the eggs scenario. Thanks, Alistair. I mean, so of course, we're not just in a recession here, we're also in a global pandemic, and we have an ongoing crisis that, that governments around the world are trying to respond to. 
And I know, you know, in China, for example, we've seen Samer announcing that it would try to expedite merger reviews in the pharmaceutical and the medical sector during the crisis so that those companies can get on with helping respond to the pandemic. I think it'd be interesting to hear from each of you whether you're seeing anything similar in, in your jurisdictions or whether it's, it's business as usual. China, maybe we'll start with you. Do you see anything like what Samer's doing in the EU? Um, I think, uh, Jen, consistent with the Commission's approach back in 2008-2009 uh, when, when we were faced with the financial crisis, I think the Commission has, has signaled quite clearly that it will not relax uh, the criteria for its assessment of mergers during the COVID-19 crisis. And that includes, I think, the interpretation of the uh, failing firm defense criteria that we were talking about a, a few minutes ago. I think Mar- Margrethe Vestager, the Commission Executive Vice President in charge of competition policy, recently commented that the crisis shouldn't be a shield to allow mergers that would hurt consumers and hold back the recovery. So I think that that gives you an idea. Uh, and I think it makes clear indeed that the standards of review before the European Commission are, are very unlikely to be eased because of the economic crisis that, that, that may result from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, past practice, I think, shows that authorities, and in particular the European Commission, uh, are reluctant to approve deals that may result in a permanent structural change in the market based on short-term considerations, um, including, for example, significant industry-wide economic shocks. So whilst I expect that the Commission will, will continue to take a firm restrictive stance on, for example, applying the criteria of the failing firm defense, I, I do think that merging parties are likely to invoke crisis-related arguments in their substantive argumentation as to why a transaction will not give rise to restrictive effects on competition. For example, by arguing that their competitive position is weakened as a result of the crisis or market conditions are expected to erode the competitive significance of, of, the, of the merging firms, uh, maybe because changed market circumstances uh, will make anti-competitive merger effects more less likely to occur, or perhaps uh, because the merger is necessary to shore up the market as it emerged from the crisis. I think one, one additional point perhaps to make is that wider policy considerations, um, such as, for example, the avoidance of uh, significant job losses, whilst they are not, strictly speaking, part of the Commission's substantive analysis of a transaction under the EU merger regulation, I think they may still play a role. I wouldn't go as far as saying that saving jobs um, might get you cleared by the European Commission, but I think that in the present climate, uh, employment-related considerations may have some influence over the outcome of a merger control review, and in particular, I would say, in politically sensitive sectors, even if such influence is, is not expressly acknowledged ultimately in the, in the, in the Commission's uh, clearance decision. That's interesting, Tona. So, Alistair, in the UK, is it the same? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, the UK here is broadly aligned with the EU, which is, a, which is a form of words that perhaps we don't use as much as we'd like to these days in times of Brexit. But certainly in this regard, look, the CMA's official position is that nothing has changed as a result of the crisis. Um, so in April this year, the CMA actually published some guidance on its assessment of mergers during the crisis. 
Uh, and that emphasised that the pandemic hadn't brought about any relaxation of the standards by which mergers are, are assessed. That being said, and maybe going back to one of the earlier conversations that we were having around failing firm, uh, we are already seeing cases in which the failing firm defence uh, is being run, and even where it's being applied to the acquisition of targets who, who might not have appeared to have been in severe financial difficulty prior to the crisis. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly here about the CMA's work on the Amazon Deliveroo Phase 2 merger inquiry. And in that case, the, the CMA provisionally cleared what was just a minority investment by Amazon in, in Deliveroo, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a UK-based online restaurant delivery company. And that clearance was on the basis of apparently compelling evidence that as a result of COVID-19, Deliveroo was likely to exit the market uh, unless it received the additional funding provided by Amazon. I have to say this came as something of a surprise to me, uh, given that my family has been making a very significant financial contribution to Deliveroo during lockdown. Uh, But anyway, that was the the provisional findings by the CMA. There's a bit going on in this case. So I think there was some suspicion that acceptance of the defence gave the CMA uh, a convenient out uh, from a deal where perhaps it had overextended its jurisdiction uh, in order to review the transaction. Uh, And it's particularly striking that in the phase one referral decision, the CMA actually made no reference at all to a failing firm defence. But, you know, time moved on uh, and maybe the Chapman family monies actually made their way through to the Deliveroo accounts because the CMA actually ended up bringing out revised provisional findings, uh, effectively saying that their compelling evidence had been overtaken by events uh, and the Deliveroo was actually no longer failing uh, and then the deal was cleared on, on other grounds instead. One of the things to take from that, though, is when the failing firm defence was in play, the CMA made clear that the the burden for proving it remained very high. That said, it is probably safe to assume that we will see more failing firm defences being run uh, as the economic impact of the crisis, both in the UK and globally, continues. If you look beyond the failing firm defence, the CMA's recent prohibition decision in JD Sports and Foot Asylum demonstrates that the CMA is not going to clear problematic transactions simply because the merger parties have been negatively affected by the crisis. So in that case, the CMA took the view that the parties would not be disproportionately affected by the crisis, such that either would be in a weaker competitive position relative to each other uh, or the competitors, or that other competitors stood to benefit disproportionately from the crisis. Uh, And the chair of the CMA Phase 2 panel actually said, you know, we don't see the effects of the current crisis changing the competitive dynamics in a way that diminishes the substantial lessening of competition which we need to remedy. Now, given the businesses were two sports clothing retailers, you might imagine this all came as as a bit of a surprise to them given that they weren't actually able to open their stores for business uh, due to COVID. Uh, And what's happened since then is that JD Sports has actually appealed the CMA's decision uh, on the basis that, amongst other things, that the CMA actually erred in excluding the effect of COVID-19 on Foot Asylum from its competitive assessment. 
But what that means, however, I think, is that the CMA's position remains uh, that the the fact that a sector in which merger parties operate has been affected by the crisis doesn't in and of itself justify a relaxation of the applicable standards of review. So very consistent with the Vestager quote that, that Tona said, uh, I think it's a US quote dating back to 2008, that recessions are temporary, mergers are forever. Uh, so I think very much the same sort of sentiment we see being enthusiastically embraced by, by the CMA. Mary, maybe over to you. I don't know if the US agencies have changed their approach at all. In the US, the approach is, it sounds like very similar to that of the CMA and the EC. Uh, so the antitrust agencies, the FTC and DOJ, uh, have made it very clear that the existence of COVID, of the pandemic, does not change the application of antitrust law and that scrutiny of transactions will not be relaxed during this time. They absolutely recognize financial realities. So to the extent that a firm or parties want to make a failing firm or a failing division argument, the FTC and DOJ, of course, recognize uh, the financial realities that parties are facing today. And with that said, they will absolutely hold the party's feet to the fire to make out every single aspect of a failing firm or failing division argument, if, if that's what they're going for. So far, we've really been focusing on the competition merger control processes, but obviously there's been a lot in the news uh, over the last weeks and months about uh, new foreign investment regimes and expanded foreign investment regimes to respond uh, in response to the COVID crisis. And Tona, maybe I can kick it to you first, because Europe has really been an epicenter of this. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in Europe on the foreign investment side in response to the crisis? Yeah, definitely, Jen. I think indeed you're right. A lot is going on in this space uh, when it comes to foreign investment control in in Europe. It's an area where we see the Commission being very active, uh, despite the fact that they have sort of limited direct powers to take measures as the control of foreign direct investment is remains a competence of the EU member states. But uh, the Commission has taken a number of initiatives. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll return to those in a minute. And then at the same time, uh, we've seen a number of uh, member states in Europe, as you say, Jen, either reinforce their existing foreign investment regimes, I'm thinking of countries like France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, uh, and other countries have also just launched new, completely new foreign investment regimes. For example, in Spain, in Slovenia, a number of other countries are thinking about introducing their own regime, uh, for example, in Belgium. Now, when it comes to the Commission, in an interview with the FT in April uh, of this year, Commissioner Vestager noted that uh, there is a real risk of businesses of strategic importance to the EU becoming vulnerable to takeovers as a result of the pandemic. And I think in in line with this thinking or with this quote, uh, the Commission issued guidance um, a few weeks ago, I think it was back in in March, to the member states in relation to foreign direct investment during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, The guidance effectively encourages the member states to use all the tools that they have available, both at the EU and the national level, 
to avoid a loss of critical assets and technology as a result of the pandemic. In particular, the Commission is, has recommended that member states make full use of the foreign direct investment screening mechanisms that do already exist to take fully into account the risks uh, to critical health infrastructures, supply of critical inputs and other critical sectors, and to also use all other available options to prevent a foreign investor from acquiring control over strategically important companies. And the Commission may, uh, in fact, have been preaching to the converted. Uh, to take a very recent example, Germany has announced a 300 million euro acquisition of a 23% stake in the uh, biotech company CureVac. It's a company that is about to proceed to clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccine. And this move is uh, understood to follow the attempts by the U.S. government, or uh, perhaps better said, President Trump, back in March to entice CureVac to move its entire COVID-19 vaccine R&D work to the U.S. and to supply vaccines exclusively to the U.S. And I think we can we can expect to see further initiatives by by governments in the various member states, such as, for example, state building in strategically important companies considered to be vulnerable for foreign takeovers. Now, briefly going back to the topic of foreign investment controls, I did also want to flag that the um, Europeans Foreign Direct Investment Screening Regulation will be coming into force in October 2020. That regulation will introduce an EU-level mechanism to coordinate the screening of foreign investments that are likely to affect the security and public order of the EU and its member states. Whilst foreign investment reviews as I said before, will will continue to be conducted at the level of the EU member states. The regulation will empower the Commission to uh, be involved in those reviews at national level by issuing uh, opinions and and comments on specific transactions. In light of the very uh, recent developments and the the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, we, we do expect that that regulation will be implemented very quickly across the EU. Thanks, Tona. So, so Al, I mean, I think in the UK, in the same vein, they just announced new foreign investment measures just last month. Um, is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, Jen. And look, we're seeing in the UK some pretty similar concerns around the vulnerability of politically sensitive assets. Uh, and that has certainly galvanised some, some foreign investment reform in the UK. It's fair to say it's part of an ongoing trend that was there before COVID, but it's certainly been accelerated by by the pandemic. Uh, and you're right, um, in June, the, the government introduced some measures that were really focused on protecting the UK's resilience to COVID uh, and other public health emergencies. Uh, and it was quite striking, the tagline from the business secretary who, who announced the measures was that the UK is open for investment, but not for exploitation. So what's actually happened is that a new public interest intervention ground has been introduced, which uh, exceptionally, because the CMA is meant to be apolitical without government involvement, but exceptionally this allows the government to intervene in certain deals, uh, including hostile foreign takeovers, involving businesses that would be considered critical to the UK's ability to, to combat public health emergencies. Uh, such as we're seeing at the moment with COVID. I think what's quite striking is the new rules 
also apply to targets that may play a crucial role in mitigating the effects of a pandemic. So that might actually be interpreted as broadly as to include companies active in the food supply chain uh, or logistics companies, uh, and not just limited to, to pure healthcare players or PPE manufacturers. Uh, instead, it's, it's a wider protection covering really all businesses that are key, I think, to protecting the resilience of the UK in a pandemic. So it's it's pretty broad application. And as I say, it's part of an ongoing trend. These measures aren't coming in in isolation. We've been waiting for quite a while now for the new National Security and Investment Bill. That was actually lined up a long time before COVID. And we've been, been told for a while this is going to be published imminently. I think the latest intelligence on that is it, it, it may not now appear before the summer recess. But when it does come through, it, it, it's pretty important because in line with what Tono was talking about uh, in, in Europe, this is going to be the UK's uh, national security screening mechanism. Uh, it's going to be separate from the merger regime uh, and it's going to capture a wide class of acquisitions of UK entities and, and assets, including IP potentially, regardless of their turnover or, or market share. Uh, and it does flow from a, a long-standing concern in the UK that perhaps is best reflected in the, in the rather directional title of an ongoing investigation by the UK Parliament's Foreign Affairs Select Committee into the role of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in blocking foreign asset stripping of UK companies. Uh, that struggling UK assets are, are being lost to opportunistic buyers. Uh, so we're seeing some real political intervention to try and, and prevent that, to try and safeguard key assets of the UK. So Mary, I mean, I think in the US, the situation is a little bit different because CFIUS has been established for a long time. And, um, you know, it's it's obviously not a new regulation. But are you seeing anything different coming out of CFIUS in response to this particular crisis? CFIUS, uh, which stands for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, it's the main body for policing foreign investment in the United States. It has been very active up until and through the time of the pandemic. Um, It has not, as far as I'm aware, commented publicly on any change in policy or activity due to the pandemic. Um, And with that being said, CFIUS has, as many of us know, significant authority to review foreign investment and to prohibit and even to unwind transactions that it views as a threat to national security. There have been some political proposals, political theater really, congressional proposals to bar mergers, to bar acquisitions by Chinese entities, to bar mergers and acquisitions altogether during the pandemic. But I think it's probably not worth delving into any of those proposals. with too much detail because it really is more along the lines of political theater, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, not something that uh, is actually going to be a a bill that passes into law or any kind of actual change in policy that we should anticipate. 
Yeah, and I mean, Mary, maybe to go back to a point you just made, we're in a world where it seems like everything is changing constantly. But I think if I could take one thing away from a lot of what you all have said today, it seems that with respect to merger control, uh, a lot of things really stay the same. So maybe maybe we cannot take some comfort in that. But I think we're we're at the end of our time. So, you know, Mary, Tona, Al, thank you all very much for, for joining us today and sharing your perspectives on this. And uh, to our listeners, thanks very much for tuning in. And we will see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.